Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina lives. Episode 5 Everyday People and the Washed-Out Colors of the Rainbow Winter, Cleveland, Ohio Cleveland was experiencing a real winter, and I was happy to be home. It had been a long adventure, and I missed seeing the white winter snow. There was something about dingy old Cleveland that made me happy. It wasn't vibrant, green, or exciting like California. It was calm and gray and predictable, and I couldn't wait to build a snowman or get big hugs from my aunts and my grandma Angelina. Diana must have also been happy to be home because she turned into a strangely sweet and loving mother. She packed our school lunches every day in little brown bags and began sewing incessantly on her new sewing machine. She made us kids matching outfits using fabrics more suited to working-class Cleveland than that of the counterculture revolution. She bought us a Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head and his pals! <laughs> and was extremely kind to me when I came down with the chicken pox. She combed down my frizzy hair once a week with olive oil and constantly played records by The Temptations, The Jackson Five, and her personal favorite, Tom Jones. She told me if she ever got a chance to see him live on stage, she would throw her underwear at him. I thought that was a strange comment for a married woman to make, but it did pique my interest about this Tom Jones guy, and on closer inspection, I noticed he looked a lot like my father, Jim. My mother and I both loved to dance, but she preferred to dance naked. I felt more or less safe with my mother, but there was one vicious cycle that we couldn't break. I had begun to wet the bed, and every night I would have the same dream. Someone would hold a bucket underneath me, and a warm stream of relief would trickle out. I would wake up in a pool of pee with my limbs sticking to the plastic sheet that Diana had me sleeping on. Her beautiful face would turn mean and ugly, and she would command me to get the belt. The spankings made me nervous, so I started biting my fingernails. Diana took offense to this, so she would douse my fingertips in hot sauce, which didn't work because I acquired a taste for the stuff. Every night I would beg myself not to pee the bed, but that damn dream just wouldn't go away. Restless. Once the bite of late spring gnawed at Cleveland, Paul and Diana's frozen dream of an alternative lifestyle began to thaw and renew. This time they had a plan. We were going to Tequilma, Oregon to live on a commune. We did not leave Cleveland with the immediate melting of the snow. We had to wait until Paul earned enough money to fund our latest endeavor. Paul's occupation was never clear to me. 
I often heard the words VISTA and social work in regards to him and was vaguely aware that he helped people. He must have been a nice man to do that kind of work, so I never understood what he was doing with my mother. She was not nice, but she did need a lot of help, and maybe that was the attraction. I never considered Paul to be my stepfather, even though he was, technically. His personality was so overshadowed and controlled by Diana that I mostly ignored him, except when he was doing her dirty work. Before we set wheels to our latest adventure, we joined my Italian relatives for a typical Sunday dinner. Everything was as it should be. A house full of relatives, the aromas of flank steak, sausages, and red sauce, and my grandmother, as always, hustling between the stove and the brand new dining room table. My grandfather, who was from the old country, couldn't speak a word of English. So to compensate, he would stuff $1 bills in the hands of all his grandchildren. He would sit in a chair all by himself and take on the look of a mysteriously quiet and self-contained man whose thoughts were wandering back to the olive fields of Italy, far, far away from this noisy house in Cleveland. All of a sudden, a fight broke out and my uncles were rolling around on the living room floor while my grandfather sat stoically in his chair, watching. I had been in the kitchen with Grandma and had no idea what this fight was all about, but ascertained that it had something to do with my mom, who appeared to be playing dumb, because my aunts went crazy on her. Paul tried to mediate, but things got hairy and I was frightened for him. My uncles were tough guys and Paul was more of a dandy man with no fight in him whatsoever. But he was a smart man and he knew there was no way to quell a house full of hot-headed angry Italians. So he ushered us out of there as fast as he could. I never got to eat that last supper and I never saw my beloved grandmother again. For my family, all roads out of Cleveland seemed to lead to Chicago. And that is where we ended up in July of 1970. We were there to visit some of Paul's friends, but also to enjoy a free concert in Grant Park. The headline performer was Sly and the Family Stone. The park was very crowded with everyday people and all the washed out colors of the rainbow. Somewhere in the distance a band was playing, but by the time the music got to our ears, it warbled and echoed and contributed to the taunt, erratic vibe that was brewing in the underbelly of this day. Paul and his friends were talking social justice while we kids lingered about doing kid stuff. I was sitting in the grass plucking four-leaf clovers when an extremely handsome, long-haired, and patchoulied man came up to me and asked if he could take my picture. He put some dandelion flowers in my hair and told me he was going to turn the picture into a poster. He was going to call it 
flower child. I was tickled pink inside and I felt like a star, but I kept my excitement to myself. Diana was sitting within earshot and I didn't know how she would react. I was surprised when she gave her consent, but I didn't fully trust her, so I acted like I couldn't be bothered. I didn't want Diana to get mad at me or become jealous. She and Lisa were the pretty ones, and I was fat and ugly. Why would anyone want to take my picture? But they did, and I am sure this made her mad. The next minute, completely out of nowhere, I felt a mass of people pushing in on us from all directions. It was as if a fight was going on somewhere in the middle of the crowd, but we were too far away to see it. As quickly as the crowd pushed in, it just as quickly pushed out and people started running. We had no idea what was going on, so we just stood there for a minute while Paul and Diana tried to get a sense of the situation. It didn't take long before white balls of tear gas came whizzing by our heads, turning a sunny day cloudy and filling our eyes with burning and tears. We were with a large group of people, so getting us all to run in the same direction was tricky, and that's how I ended up temporarily separated from the group. The rush of excitement was so overwhelming that I forgot to be scared. I just stood there watching from inside my imaginary bubble of protection as the conditions unraveled around me. There didn't seem to be any sense of direction or clear flow of traffic. People were just buzzing this way and that, back and forth, fleeing for their lives from some unidentified monster in the crowd. The hooligan hippie types overturned cop cars and set them on fire and then threw rocks into storefront windows, shattering all possibilities of a pleasant day. The policemen were running around with batons overhead until they began hitting the unfortunate people who had fallen to the ground. Sing, a simple song, never made it to the stage that day. Instead, the musical score was the sound of sirens blaring, people yelling, police screaming, and children crying. Someone in our group came back and swept me up out of the chaos, and we got ourselves safely secured in the Fortress Redoubt. When we got back to Paul's friend's apartment, we watched the riot on television. No one knows exactly what set it off, but the rumor was that the crowd became angry because Sly was either late for the show or didn't show up at all. This didn't seem like a good reason for all that violence, but it didn't really matter to me. I was just a kid, and I didn't know who Sly was anyway. To me, the ride had been fun and exhilarating. It was like being in the middle of a movie or some crazy dream, where for once everyone else was in trouble and not me. It wasn't my problem, it was my entertainment, and in the end, it was just another crazy day in Chicago. The road to Tequilma cut right through America, the sometimes not so beautiful. There was a strange smell in Indiana and superior and suspicious looks given by fellow travelers at the roadside stuckies. I could feel the heat of their scorn and distaste in those moments, and I was glad I was a kid. No one could blame me for being a hippie. It wasn't my idea.
Back on the road, Paul had a ritual that made me happy every morning. He would strike a wooden match and light the burners of the propane stove, and then he would set the coffee pot on the metal grate. I loved the smell of sulfur, and there was something soothing about the clackety-clack of metal on metal. I relished this ritual because it signified a new day and almost always a new state. No matter what demons Diana had put us to bed with the night before, nothing could take away from the fresh start feeling of waking up in an unknown campsite in an unknown state. Once we got to the commune in Tequilma, it looked just like any other campsite. We were deep in the precious woods and situated next to a rapidly running river. We parked the bus near an A-frame cabin and Paul and Diana began to set up house. I soon realized this wasn't an ordinary campsite because there weren't any straight people. Everyone was a hippie and some wore clothes and some didn't. There was one man in particular who was always naked, which I found rude, disturbing, and unbearable on the eyes. He lived in the A-frame cabin next to us, and I grew to despise him. He was bushy all over, and he reeked of machismo, weed, and wood-burning stove. He wasn't mean. He just loved himself too much. He would sit cross-legged on a pillow, Buddha-style, rolling the green buds that filled up an old coffee can into homemade cigarettes, smoking them one right after another. We kids never listened to him, but he was always talking to someone. He was obviously a philosopher full of lofty and intelligent ideas about thinking rather than doing. His woman, as he called her, was sweet and quiet and fluttered about the cabin, doing what was obviously the work of two. She wore headbands and very long dresses, as if to make up for all the fabric that he wasn't wearing, and I thought she could do better than him. Paul's intention was to build us a winterized cabin that would be attached to the front door of the bus, but by September the structure still looked like a lean-to and would in no way protect us from the fast-approaching winter. With high hopes, we started the free school on the commune anyway. This school was the most appropriate for me and my favorite school of all. There were two young teachers in a classroom of maybe 15 children, and they wafted gently around the room like fair springtime maidens, walking on clouds and tickling our senses. They spoke in soft and tender tones and rubbed our backs tenderly while we lay on warm, quiet quilts during nap time. We made hanging sand castles, learned Aesop's fables, and ate vegetarian lunches. The teachers encouraged my daydreaming, which I did frequently, while staring out the windows of the little cabin schoolhouse, my eyes aglow with the beauty of the Oregon landscape. By the time the first snow had fallen, we were still living in the bus. We held out as long as we could, but the cold days and nights made the houseless communal living unbearable. We packed up once again and headed for the nearest town, Cave Junction, a place that didn't take too kindly to hippies. Diana didn't care. She blended in everywhere and nowhere, 
and truth be told, we weren't the most outlandish hippies. For anyone who was paying close attention, just beneath the bohemian sheen, our working class roots were steadfast and strong. It wasn't so much the bus or the way we looked that usually got us into trouble. It was Diana's mouth and her forthright attitude. And try as it might, the patchouli oil couldn't mask her combative and condescending nature. <laughs>